This morning will be Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. Galatians 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Let us pray. Indeed, O Lord, all glory, laud, and honor are due your name and your greatness. We ask that you would teach us, that you would help us to understand these things and to walk in them. We ask that we would sit at your feet and we would learn of you, that you would proclaim to us the revelation of your history of redemption and your desire for your people. We ask that you would use these things to build your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Two major themes come to their climactic conclusion in this section of Paul's letter. Imprisonment under the law is something that he spoke of in much detail in chapter 4. And yet there is that opposite side, as we said, there is an either or here, and that is liberation in Christ. And it's not just a theoretical explanation that Paul gives. It's not just a, uh, something that is a, just a theological dialogue here, but Paul, as it, as it were, turns up the rhetorical heat and if you don't believe that statement, just take a quick glance at verse 12 of chapter 5. What's at stake for the Galatian believers? Well, there are those who believe that it is simply they're getting along with the Jewish believers, or it's something to do with their attitudes towards one another, but I believe again in the the heat that I hear from Paul, the, the energy that he expends here, that I, I believe that he is saying your eternal destiny is at stake. Are you children of the free woman, he says in the end of chapter 4, or are you children of the slave woman? How do you live out your identity as Christians? Will your manner of living result in righteousness before God? In short, I believe Paul says, you must choose. You must choose between Christ and the law. I believe this is a set of warnings. 
Do not submit, he says. Do not submit yourselves. They're, they're on the verge or, or even in the act of doing this. Th again, this is not theoretical. This is, a, this is this transitional connector between what, I, what he told them about slavery to the law and they're actually committing and moving themselves back into that slavery. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He joins the key theological thoughts of chapter 2, 16 through 431. A long section. But what is the key phrase? What's the key note uh, of that section? Justification is by faith alone. And in the following section after verse 12 of chapter 5, there is the key Christological thought that he brings through the Spirit and in Christ. He is saying, choose between Christ and the law. Do not submit yourselves again to the yoke of slavery. So he says, it was for freedom, or in the Greek, it's brought forward. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, you might think that Paul is playing Captain Obvious. Okay, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Doesn't that make sense? But he is trying to show us that the purpose of Christ in setting us free is that we would be free indeed. It is the purpose or the goal of freedom. Paul refers to our freedom, our liberty in Christ and other sections of Galatians. In 2.4 he refers to that liberty as not being bound by circumcision. He, he says in chapter 3 that we were redeemed from the curse of the law. In chapter 4, we were redeemed. He says Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. Now I remind you of those passages because there are those who believe that this idea of freedom, and it is, there is freedom from sin and guilt. Christ does give us that freedom. He does give us freedom from death. He gives us freedom from the power of the evil one. And he also not only gives us power or freedom from those things, but also freedom to things. Freedom to believe in him. Freedom to sit at Christ's feet and learn from him. To be taught by him. Freedom to love Christ in worship. But what is the context here? I believe that Paul is using this idea of the yoke of slavery in, in the context of, of Galatians, it is freedom from the law's binding authority upon them. Don't you realize, he says, that it is for freedom and not for slavery that Christ has set you free. Do not let yourselves be burdened by this. The message is, do not make the costly exchange of the freedom that you have in Christ for the slavery and bondage to the law. Now again, there are those who would argue that the Jewish rabbis and the teaching would, would, would never say this. They would never call the law a yoke. And yet, 
Commentator F.F. F. Bruce uh, found writings of rabbis of the day that used the expression, quote, the yoke of the commandments. Or further, in a different reading, the yoke of the uh, kingdom of heaven. They saw this as, as a yoke. They saw this as something that perhaps using it in the case of, of seeing a yoke of auction that, that bound them to God. Keeping the law was binding them with God. But Paul uses this in a negative sense. I don't think we can, we can argue with, with Paul. Remember his encounter with the Pharisees uh, in Acts chapter 15. They were in Jerusalem and they had called the council and the sect of the Pharisees came to the apostles and said, it is necessary for them, meaning the believers, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And when Paul is given an opportunity to stand and respond, he asks them directly, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Paul sees this law as slavery, an enslavement, imprisonment to the law. In the section that our, our brother read this morning in his Sunday school class from Acts chapter 13, my, my eyes fell a little further down from where he read. But Paul, again, is, is uh, here preaching a sermon in Pisidian Antioch on one of his missionary journeys. And he says, therefore, and he's it's in a section where he's talking about the Holy One, the Holy One of God, who God raised him from the dead and did not, he did not undergo decay. And he says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, meaning Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. It is for freedom, not for slavery, that Christ has set us free. And he gives, I believe, a quick succession of three warnings here in Galatians 5. Warnings of things that they ought to avoid or things to uh, understand that they would obligate themselves to if they submit themselves to the law. In verse 2 he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. He, he says, Look, look pay, pay attention to this. I, Paul, I, I'm your father in the faith. I, I'm your friend. I was the one who brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to you in the first place. He says, if you receive circumcision, that is, if you receive circumcision as an act of qualifying yourself as a member of God's family, then Jesus Christ can no longer be of any good to you. And what was circumcision? Well, simply it is the cutting off of the male foreskin. It re represented to the Jews 
from Genesis 17 on what distinguished the covenant people of God. The, the cutting, the act of physically bleeding and being cut was to distinguish them, to set them apart as the people of God. And now they were being called upon by the agitators, those who came to Galatia saying, you must be circumcised in order to show, in order to be a full member of the people of God. And as I looked at the research that others have done into the attitude and the, the uh, view of circumcision in terms of Gentiles, those who were not born a Jew, coming to Christ, coming to the kingdom of God. It, it was, circumcision was called, quote, the last and highest hurdle for Gentile conversion to Judaism. Perhaps there were other things, the outward things that, oh, okay, well, I can do these things. I can try to keep that law. I can observe the sacrifices. I can do the ceremonies, but now you want me to undergo this surgery to shed my blood. But Paul seems to be saying, oh, the agitators are encouraging the Galatians to take this decisive step. And Paul's focus here is on the future. Accepting circumcision, Douglas Moo writes, will mean that Christ will be no benefit to them on the day of judgment. Christ will be of no benefit to them. And further in verse 3, he says, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Not that they were committing themselves to a total Jewish way of life, as some believe. Some think Paul is saying, Okay, do you understand? If you, if you accept circumcision, if you have yourself circumcised, then you just have to understand that now you need to go back and you start keeping all of the law. But I don't think that's in Paul's thinking here. I believe that it is something deeper. The word that is translated in the New American Standard, the obligation... It could also be translated to owe. They were not committing themselves to a Jewish lifestyle, but they were rejecting the justification in Christ by faith. And they were committed to finding their justification by keeping the law. And now we can understand the severity and the heat that Paul turns up here. <coughs> I testify to every man who would submit himself to this regulation that you are under obligation. You owe it to the law to keep the whole of it. And so he presents before them a dilemma. You cannot have both Christ and circumcision. Now be sure to understand what he means in this context. He doesn't mean if you have circumcised your child that you are sinning. 
He is not speaking of that. I believe that we see that Paul is saying, if you are committing to this, if you are moving into this decisive step as an act of making yourself right before God, he did not have a problem with those Jews who were circumcised as Jews. On the eighth day, that's what they were to do. He did not have a problem, as I would not have a problem today, if parents decided to have their sons circumcised. And modern science is still debating whether there is really any health uh, reasons to do that. That's not what Paul is addressing here. It's if you are trying to make yourself by that action right before God. And so if we were to look at the logic of Paul's dilemma that he presents, you cannot have both Christ and circumcision. He says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no value to you. If you rely on circumcision for justification, you are under obligation to keep the whole law. But remember chapter 3, if you try to keep the whole law, you will fail. What does he say in verse 13? Or sorry, verse 11 of chapter 3. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. For the Jews, for the agitators who came to Galatia, their justification was by circumcision and the keeping of the law. Philip Ryken in his commentary on Galatians I think asks a good question of us as 21st century believers. What is your mode of justification? What is it that you put in place of faith in Christ as your justification? Is it your works in the church? Is it those things that you would do to in your community? Is it the frequency of your devotional life and the quality of your reading through the scriptures? Or do you look back as many do, well, I made a decision. I raised my hand, I walked the aisle, I signed the card. Or perhaps looking back and saying, well, my parents had me baptized as an infant. I went through catechism and I stood for confirmation. But Paul is saying, if your justification, your mode of justification is not by faith, then whatever it is, you are enslaved to your own works. And so he says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law you have fallen from grace. You who are seeking to be justified by the law signals, I think, two things. One is that they have an intention to do this thing. They have an intention to commit themselves to the law rather than to faith in Jesus Christ. But I think it also shows us that it is a self-justification that I can do something for my salvation, I can do something for my justification, and I believe in the context of the scripture, I can do something for my sanctification. 
And what are the results? Well, again, I think the heat is up. The first result in verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. It means separated. It means alienated. Or we could say it in a modern vernacular, you have been cut loose. As we said, circumcision in the Old Covenant meant a cutting. A cutting off of part of your member. It, but it also meant that a, that a person, uh, and you read in Genesis 17, where the instruction is given to Abraham to have them circumcised. If a man would not be circumcised, he would be cut off from the kingdom of God. And yet Paul says here, if you submit yourself to circumcision to justify yourself, you will be cut off. He says, you have fallen from grace. I don't believe that this is a statement of our, about their eternal security, but I do believe that he is saying you are outside of the realm of God's grace. What is emphasized here? What do we see here in, in, the, the, in Paul? But we, we see that he portrays it through the law, through the entire books of Moses, all five books. And something, uh, we discussed this on Thursday night in, from, from Genesis. What is missing from people who are looking at the law as something they do and something they must keep is they're missing the grace of God in it. Showing what he is like. Showing what, what he can do. Showing and revealing through the scriptures Jesus Christ. The emphasis is on the gracious nature of God in our justification. Freely God has rescued us. Freely he went to the cross. Freely he gave his life a ransom for many. Pursuit of the law as a means of justification is human effort. And it is over and against what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. The dilemma is put before them. You cannot have both Christ and circumcision. But Paul ends on a note of inclusion, a note of exhortation in verse 5. For we, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. He, he says, take ownership with me of this principle. Take ownership with me of this truth. Our right standing before God is confirmed to us by the work of the Holy Spirit and by the means of faith. Through the Spirit and by faith is how we live. And those who by the Spirit and by faith live, they also confidently wait for that ultimate confirmation because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Faith is the only means of attaining righteousness. Faith is the only means of entering into that blessed relationship with God Almighty. And so he asked them, as I think he would ask us, are you waiting? Are you waiting confidently for the day of judgment? 
Are you waiting confidently for the day when it will be revealed who the sons and daughters of Christ are? For in Christ Jesus, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It means it's not in force. It, it, it means it has no value. Why? Because faith and not the law is the means of finding acceptance with God. In Christ, I, I believe it means in the realm of Christ, in the influence of Christ, no human claims, no human status, no human works are valid or have any meaning. It's interesting that he says, neither circumcision, which we've talked about, that act, that submitting yourself, nor uncircumcision. It, it means there, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Either side has no claim, no human effort, no work. It's all by faith in Christ. Nothing else makes us righteous. Nothing else gives us hope. Nothing else strengthens our faith. Nothing else grants us the ability to love. But what does Paul say? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Faith works itself out in love. Paul is not just preaching to them about justification, I believe, and we'll see in the next section that he is also looking forward to their sanctification. Faith working through love. It's credited to John Calvin, the pithy phrase, it is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is never alone. God gives us a glimpse here into the three great graces that Paul writes of in 1 Corinthians 13. We have the hope of righteousness. We have the faith that justifies. And we have the love that God builds in our hearts. These three, faith, hope, and love, Paul brings together. It is not circumcision in the law. It is righteousness and peace and faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what is this faith like? What is this faith that we ought to have? Well, the theologians speak of the notional faith. I believe certain things. I believe that these things happen or exist versus a trusting faith, a fidelity of faith in trusting and giving ourselves to it. And I thank the author, Josh Moody, for bringing this illustration to my attention. And I began to read from uh, the Smithsonian site about a man by the name of Charles Blondin, he was a French entertainer who came to the United States in the mid-1850s. And in 1859, he took a two-inch diameter hemp rope 
1,300 feet long and he strung it from the American side of Niagara Falls to the Canadian side. And they had a few guy wires on it to hold it, to keep it from swaying, but because it was hemp, there was about a drop of 50 feet from one side to the other. And in the summer of 1859, he gave a series of demonstrations of how he tightroped across this rope. First with the balancing pole that you might expect, and he would go across, and then he would come, after a short rest, come back. Later he ditched the pole and just walked across and walked back. Sometimes he would stop in the middle and he would balance on one foot. Sometimes he would do a somersault. Sometimes he would do a cartwheel. Sometimes he put on a blindfold. Sometimes he would simply say, I feel like walking backwards. And he would walk across Niagara Falls backwards. He brought uh, sometimes things with him. One time he carried the old daguerreotype camera with him, with the tripod, and he set it on the rope, and he took a picture of the crowd from the, the rope. One time he brought a table and a chair, and he got out to the middle of the rope, and he put the table down, and he sat in the chair, and in very male-like fashion, he put his feet up on the table. There is a boat, and I think it still exists, called the Maid of the Mist. It's a tourist boat that goes up and anchors so people can get up close and feel the mist of the falls. And Blondin would have the boat anchor underneath the rope. And as he got partway across, he would interact with the people on the boat. One time taking a portable cook stove and several eggs, and on the rope he made an omelet and cooked it on his little stove, and when he was done, he took a rope and he lowered it down to a passenger on the deck of the boat. But on one of his trips across from the American side, as he approached the Canadian side and was going to take a short break before he returned, he turned to the crowd and addressed them. Who believes I can carry a man across with me, he asked. The crowd shouted, yeah, we've seen you do all these things. You've carried all these things. We know that you can do it. Fine, he said. Now who will let me carry them across? And there was silence. He asked again, do you trust me? Silence. And finally one man stepped forward. It turned out to be Blondin's manager named Harry Colcord. And he allowed Blondin to piggyback him on his back and carry him across the rope back to the American side. Halfway across, Blondin shouted to Harry Colcord, Look up, Harry. You are no longer Cocard. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me mind, body, and soul. So I would ask, is your faith a notional faith? I believe Christ can do these things. I believe that he did these things. But remember that the scripture says even the demons believe these things and they shudder. Or is your faith a trusting faith?
relying solely upon Him and not upon yourselves, not upon your works, not a part of keeping any law, do you rely upon Him to take you safely across? In Christ Jesus, nothing else means anything but faith working through love. And it is this freedom, this freedom to love him, this freedom to serve him, this freedom, yes, to obey him, that truly sets us free. Let us pray. Our Father, again, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, to Rejoice in these things, to meditate on these things, that we might have a heart not only of wisdom, but a heart of faith that works through love. And Lord, we ask that you would build your church, that you would make your people truly free, that you would make us walk in that freedom and not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Whatever that slavery might be for us, whatever the lust, whatever the greed, whatever the pride, whatever the sin may be, Father, that we would understand and we would walk in this truth. For freedom, Christ has set us free. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from John chapter 1. The Apostle John writes of Jesus Christ, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ.